Well, thank you so much for uh, coming this afternoon. Charles Spurgeon once said, I pity the preacher who has to preach after lunch. Uh, one time, and uh, Hal Polk is asking me to do this four times after lunch. By the grace of God, I hope he may go before us this afternoon, that we may have a wonderful afternoon. Few people realize how important it is when, you're, when you are a speaker. Uh, what kind of first impressions you receive when you come to a place? And putting me up in the, the coal home and uh, having lunch with uh, uh, Reverend Polk this, after, this noon, uh, I can honestly say that on a scale of one to 10, this has begun for me at about level 11, and uh, I'm enjoying myself immensely so far, and the warmth, the hospitality, and the uh, reformed convictions, reformed vibes I'm picking up are those that resonate with, uh, with me and with my background, and I, I'm grateful for the opportunity to uh, speak to you this afternoon. Now, our theme this afternoon is a very exciting one growing in Christ. That is, of course, providing you're excited about being a Christian and about loving the Lord and wanting to have a real and vital relationship with him. There are people, of course, that claim to be Christian and aren't excited about being a Christian, aren't excited about growing. They say, I'm married to Jesus Christ, but they've got a humdrum marriage at best. As a pastor, when people come to me and say, you know, will you perform our wedding? Well, one of the first things you do, of course, is you enter into some kind of premarital counseling. And usually my first question in premarital counseling is, what kind of a marriage do you want? And they never quite know how to answer that question. So I say, well, I'll help you along. Do you want to, on a level of one to ten, do you want to, do you want to, Five. Do you want a mediocre marriage? <laughs> they say, no, of course not. We want a 10. One, one young man said to me, I want a 12. You want an excellent marriage, don't you? But often what happens, even in Christian marriages, is that people settle for something less than what they could be. And what a shame that is when Christians... Settle for less than what they should be. You see, many people that have been married 20, 30, 40 years have an acceptable marriage, smooth marriage. Maybe they only have one or two arguments a year. Not too bad. But they're like two ships passing in the night. Everything works smoothly, but there's no growing love. There's no intimacy. Even the physical act of intimacy becomes routine for them. But as a Christian, what I'm saying to you is that our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to settle on its leads. It doesn't have to become mediocre. It doesn't have to become a five when it started out as a nine or as a ten. One of the things I say when couples come to me for marital counseling is I ask them on a scale of 1 to 10, 
What was the highest point of their marriage? And they almost always say, well, it began out, it began at a 10 or it began at a 9. I said, well, you know, you can bring it back. If you clear away the clutter, you can always bring it back to at least the highest point where it was, if not beyond. And so it is as a Christian, you see. There is a way to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ and reach peaks of intimacy and vital communion with him that go beyond what you've experienced before. And that's what we want to look at this afternoon. How can we grow in Christ? I want to begin this subject by looking, first of all, at this wonderful history recorded for us in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28, in which Jesus matures the faith of the Canaanitish woman. So let's turn now to the, to the Word of God, and uh, let me read for you Matthew 15, 21 through 28. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her, Not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not fitting to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. In the original Greek, mature is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. You see, you can't grow in Christ, can you? Until you're mature in faith. That's part of the growing process, becoming mature. And Jesus says, this woman's faith is great, it's mature. So may God bless the reading of this word and the exposition of it to all of us this afternoon. This is what we want. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus could look at you and say, mature is your faith. How did the woman get to that point? Well, Jesus taught her. How did Jesus teach her? Through these three buts. But, he answered, not a word, 23. But, he answered and said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, 24. But, verse 26, he answered and said, it is not fitting to take the children's bread to cast it to dogs. He taught her through apparent silence, 23, apparent rejection, 24, an apparent insult, 26. So those are my three points for this particular message. Jesus Christ maturing 
the Canaanite woman's faith through apparent silence, apparent rejection, and apparent insult. Now, when you consider how this woman came to Jesus, like a beggar, why she came, my daughter's grievously vexed with the devil, the way she came, crying, son of David, to whom she came, son of David, which is the Messiah title, not Jesus of Nazareth, and the urgency of her coming, The tense here in Greek is repetitive. She cried it over and over and over again. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, 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 son of David, son of David, have mercy, have mercy. The streets are ringing with her cries. You and I would expect, wouldn't we, that Jesus would answer her right away. But instead, we read this astonishing and confusing response, or shall I say lack of response from Jesus, verse 23a, but he answered her, not one word. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a marriage where one partner takes it out on the other through what we call the silent treatment. But I've had to counsel a number of people in that situation in my lifetime. And I tell you, there is nothing so lethal in a relationship as giving someone else the silent treatment. It's one of the most cruel things you can do in a marriage. Have you ever talked to someone who wouldn't talk back? It's tough. Here comes this woman. No doubt there were people in her foreign territory who told her ahead of time, you're going to go to the Jewish Messiah? And you're a foreigner? A Syrophoenician? A Canaanitish woman? He's not going to listen to you. You can almost see her saying to her neighbors, but I heard, I heard that He's a savior, and he hears people before they call, and he picks up little lambs in his bosom and holds those that are with young, and he opens the eyes of the blind, and he unstops deaf ears. He'll hear me. And she comes, and she pours out her heart, and he answers not a word. What a contrast. A crying Jesus. No, a crying woman and a silent Jesus. What an objection. What's this woman going to do? Well, what would you do if you were her? You'd probably say, well, <laughs> oh, well, this is one more physician I went to and it's hopeless and I go back home. But you see, Jesus had already drawn this woman to himself in his sovereign grace. Did you notice how the, how the story begins? Behold, pay attention, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast. Jesus came all the way to the northern boundaries of Israel. And a woman came out of the same coast and came to meet him. Sovereign grace arranged this meeting. And sovereign grace already planted the seed of faith 
in this woman's heart. Otherwise, she never would have said, Son of David, the Messiah title. You see, the Lord was already at work in her. But how confusing this is. She comes, she meets him at the sovereignly, graciously arranged place of meeting. And Jesus only gives her every encouragement to doubt. He doesn't answer one word. And yet she doesn't go home. You see, faith never goes home on Jesus. Faith never turns its back on Jesus. The very essence of faith is to look to Jesus. The very essence of faith is to go to Jesus. The very essence of faith is to worship Jesus. When you live by faith, you've got nothing to go to without Jesus. Jesus is everything. What does this woman have to go back home to? Nothing but a demon-possessed girl. But how do you go on when, when God is silent? How many sermons have you heard in your life on the silence of God to believers? You know, today there's something very superficial about so many pulpits. All you hear is that is the health and wealth gospel around America today. Isn't that true? God always answers you right away. Everything is well. You're going to have wealth. You're going to have health. The Christians are always smiling. Christians are never lonely. Christians never struggle with unanswered prayer. You know that's not true. Right? You've had times, if you're a Christian, when God is silent or seems to be silent. When you have to cry out with Jeremiah, I cried, but my prayer did not pass through. And the heavens were as brass. And you say with the bride of the Song of Solomon, I sought him whom my soul loveth. I couldn't find him. And I went through the streets and I said, Saw ye him whom my soul loves. Oh, the silence of God in the life of a believer. It's a profound trial. See, by nature, we don't, we don't really mind the silence of God too much as long as, as long as God gives us a decent job and decent spouse and decent kids and decent amount of clothing and a decent home and decent shelter and decent food and well for the rest God can keep his distance but if you're a Christian you can identify with the Scottish covenanter Samuel Rutherford who said the silence of God is hell on earth for the believer because you're not just looking for heaven. You're looking for relationship. You love God. When you love someone, silence is decimating and devastating. So you can identify, can't you? With David when he said, Be not silent unto me, lest if thou be silent unto me, I become like them that go down into the pit. Hell for the believer. 
May I ask you that this afternoon? Has the silence of God ever become internally like hell for you? Do you know that struggle? Do you know the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 42? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within thee? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. And yet you're missing him. And you're crying out with Job, oh, that I knew, Job 23, 3, oh, that I knew where I might find him. Martin Luther once was missing God. This was after he was saved and after the Reformation was in progress. It was in the early 1520s. And he was confessing to his wife that to, that to, uh, to expose a false church is easier than to build a true church. And things weren't going very well there for a while. And Luther was so discouraged, he said to his wife once when he left for work in the morning, I'm afraid God is dead. And he came home that night and his, his, his dear wife, whom he always called my dear Katie, was, was a very wise woman. She had all the shades drawn, like someone had died. And Luther saw that from a distance and he, he burst open the door. He said, Katie, who died? Well, she said, this morning, you said, God. Well, God used that to break through for Luther. And he realized his foolishness. But, but the question still lingers on, doesn't it? Why would God ever be silent to a believer? Why is he silent to you? Many times. Well, of course, we never know all the reasons why God does what he does. So this is, this is a tough question because, you see, you and I can focus only on one or two things at a time. If, if, we're, if we're male, we can probably only focus on one thing at a time. If we're female, maybe half a dozen. But... You know, there's a thousand pieces in the jigsaw puzzle of our lives. And God can focus on all 1,000 at once. He knows past, present, future. He knows all contingencies. God is omniscient. And he knows what he's doing for reasons far beyond our comprehension. Martin Luther said more than half of true religion is just simply letting God be God. Being content that we don't know all the reasons why God does what he does. But I can tell you two pieces in this jigsaw puzzle. Two big pieces in this jigsaw puzzle. Of why God is sometimes silent. For the first one, turn with me if you will to John 11. John 11. You remember there that Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And you read verse six of that chapter it's an astounding verse you see he hears that Lazarus is sick unto death and we read when he had heard therefore that he was sick verse six of, of John 11 he abode two days still in the same place where he was I remember reading that verse as a boy and thinking you understand that I, I've got a mother who's 89 years old now, and she's frail, and she's weak, and if I got a call uh, in the next five minutes that said your mother is sick unto death, I'd say, friends, this is great beginning to get to know you, but, but I'm out of here. My mother is sick unto death. 
Jesus loves Lazarus, that's what it says, and he abodes, he abides two days in the same place where he was, and he's sick unto death. Why? Verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. There you have it. The glory of God. So how does God get more glorified? Does he get more glorified by, by, by healing a, a sick Lazarus? Or does he get more glorified by raising a dead Lazarus? That's a rhetorical question. But translate it into your life. How does God get more glorified? By answering all your prayers right away every time you first cry out? Or by often waiting? Maybe until some of your prayers, the fire of your prayers is gone and there's only the ashes left. And then from the ashes of your forlorn hope, God suddenly answers your prayer so that He gets all the glory. Isn't that what he often does? You see, if you're a one-year-old and you can't stand it when mommy leaves home and you weep and wail and howl every time she goes out to get some groceries, you understand it because that's a one-year-old and every time the one-year-old has this fear of anxiety, mommy's walking out of my life completely, mommy's going to be silent for 30 minutes and I think it's going to be forever. You say, one-year-old? Okay, we understand. What would you think of a 10-year-old who wept and wailed and howled every time his mother went to get the groceries? You say, something's wrong with that child. He can't handle a half an hour of his mother's silence and absence. You see, a good part about growing in Christ is that we learn to walk by faith and not by sight, and we learn to walk in darkness as well as in light. And believe what the psalmist said, darkness and light are both alike to thee, O Lord of hosts. And so God is often silent to us to get glory for himself. That's number one. And number two, to mature and to refine our faith. All those graces we just heard about from 2 Peter 1, I think it was verses 5 through 7. Those are really graces of maturation. Cornelius Burgess, by the way, the clerk of the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s, wrote an entire book on those three verses and said, this is a description of the mature Christian. Basically what he said. And so what God often does is through his silences... He matures our faith. And we grow in Christ. Well, how does he do that? Well, Peter says he silently strengthens us with strength in the inner soul. As he seems to push us away with one hand in his silence, he's actually inwardly by his spirit drawing us with the other hand to learn to trust in him in times of darkness and need and sorrow. Let's look at it this way. What would your life be like if you never had any troubles? Never had any silences? 
Never faced any afflictions. Everything always went your way. How helpful could you be to other people? How spoiled would you be in the kingdom of God? You'd be spoiled brats. That's what you'd be. I would be too. We need affliction. We need silence. You know, there's once a musician. And someone asked him, what's so special about you playing Beethoven's music compared to this other orchestra uh, that was being guided by another musician or another director? And this director said, he was being honest, he said, it's the silences between the music. Life is like that. We need pauses. We need silences. We need times of reflection to mature. All of life is like that. I'm a book publisher as well as a pastor. I, I love books. God used books in my life more than anything else, quite frankly. And I'm, I'm always publishing books, uh, two, three a month. And I, I love it. But, you know, as a publisher, you look at a page, and some publishers try to get as much on a page as possible. And it saves a little bit of cost. But I look at it and say, oh, no, there's got to be some white space on a page to make the page attractive. And, you know, see, when God grows our lives, he gives us some white space. He gives us some pauses. He gives us some silences to, to, to think, to meditate, to reflect, to mature. He brings us through tunnels. It's not all sunshine in the Christian life. When I was nine years old, my dad took just me. Oh, it was great. Just me, none of my brothers and sisters, all the way from Kalamazoo, Michigan to Hoboken, New Jersey, to pick up my grandpa who was sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. Those are the days when they didn't fly across. They, they sailed across, or took an ocean liner, rather, for four weeks. It was a big event. I got to go with my dad, and we're going along through the Pennsylvania Appalachian Mountains, and all of a sudden we were in this, one of these huge tunnels. And you know what it's like. It's a long tunnel. And I said to my dad, he gave me no warning. I said, is this tunnel ever going to end? It's dark in here, Dad. Oh, yeah, don't worry, son, don't worry. It'll end. And when you come to the end, you know, you're going to see a little pinprick of light, and it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're going to break out into the sunshine again. It was great. We did it. And ten minutes later, we're in another tunnel. And then ten minutes later, another tunnel. Later on, I reflected back. I said, you know, that's like the Christian life. God brings us through tunnels into sunshine and back into tunnels. And you know, when we go in these tunnels of darkness, it's hard. It's tough. Paul, or the author to the Hebrews, acknowledges that in Hebrews 12. But you see, though affliction for the present always seems to be, be grievous and not joyous, especially the affliction of silence. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised thereby. And so that somehow, when I come out of that tunnel, my faith is not weaker, but my faith is stronger. And I can't explain to you exactly how the Holy Spirit does that. All I know is that the Holy Spirit is working in us while we're in the tunnel so that when we come out, we learn to trust God. And as God brings us out of tunnel after tunnel after tunnel after tunnel, we learn to trust Him in His silences, in His white space. We learn to trust Him 
in everything. We learn more and more to let God be God. We learn to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ through apparent silence. But then secondly, there's this apparent rejection. The disciples reject this woman roundly, don't they? The disciples came, verse 23, and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. They had just come up from Jerusalem, where they were being hounded by people, and they were trying to arrest Jesus because of all the noise and tumult. And now they're at the very northern border of Israel, and the disciples say, Oh, no, we're going into it again. We're going to end up in prison. Get rid of this woman. Well, of course, they were totally wrong. They, did three, they had three big mistakes here. First, they were being selfish. They said, she cries after us, and we want to be spared. Secondly, they were being indifferent. She, they weren't caring for the soul of this woman or her poor daughter. And thirdly, they were being proud. They said, she cries after us. She wasn't crying after them. She was crying after Jesus. But, okay, we understand that. These disciples are also sinners, aren't they? And we understand that, that even ministers and leaders, church leaders, make mistakes and uh, that we can handle. But, but what do you do with verse 24? But he answered and said, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she wasn't a sheep. She wasn't of the house of Israel. She was lost. That was her only qualification. What do you do with that? Jesus is rejecting her, isn't he? Well, John Calvin put it this way. He said there's a difference between Christ's priestly work <coughs> as the promised seed and Savior to, in whom all nations would be blessed and Jesus' particular prophetical ministry that was confined almost exclusively to the Jews in those three years of ministry. As priest and Savior and Redeemer, he was sent by the Father to make satisfaction and atonement for people from all nations and tribes and languages. And one day at Pentecost, the, the door partition between Jew and Gentile would be broken down. But now, says Kelp, his ministry was to the Jews as prophet, primarily, prior to his intense sufferings and death. And so it was as, as if Jesus is saying to this woman, I'd like to warn you that you're acting out of turn. You're trying to raid, Calvin says, the table in the middle of the meal. And what Calvin means is, my ministry is confined to Israel here, and I'm feeding my Jewish people, and you're, you're a heathen woman, and you're coming to the table as if you're a Jewish child, and, and, and the meal's not served yet, and it's not time yet for the new era for salvation to break through to the Gentiles. So it was a pretty blatant rejection. Now what does this woman do? Oh, what would you do? Go home now. Remember what I said, faith never goes home on Jesus. Look at the next verse. Then... Then when she's rejected by the disciples, then when she's rejected by Jesus, she comes. Ah, that's faith. That's growing faith. To come even in the face of rejection. She worships him. She says, Lord, help me. 
I was sitting over in the UK somewhere in a park in between two addresses some months ago. There was a young lady who came walking out into the park with a, with a large dog. And uh, she had this stick in her hand. And she kept throwing the stick at the dog. And the dog kept grabbing the stick. He tried to grab it in mid-air. And he'd bring it back to her. Sometimes she'd hit his body with a stick. Wham! And he'd pick it up and he'd bring it back to her. He just, the dog wouldn't go away. And you know, that's what faith does with the Lord. Even when, even when he strikes us with his rod. We come back, don't we? Then came she. Then came she. And she worshipped him. She came closer in the midst of rejection. And she worshipped him. You know, worship is a wonderful word. It comes from two Greek words. Pros, which means towards. And kineo means to kiss. To kiss towards. It means all my affections. My mind, my heart, my, my, my will, my affections. Everything in me goes out to the object of worship. When she's rejected, she's kicked out the front door, she comes back in the back door, as it were, and she falls at Jesus and she says, Lord, help me. She worships him. And this prayer is so nice too, isn't it? I just love this prayer. It's a wonderful prayer to teach to your children. So here, here's the simplest prayer. You can teach a two-year-old this prayer. Lord, help me. And really there's everything in this prayer, isn't it? I like to compare it to a little chain links in a necklace. You know how one link links into the next one. And the word Lord really goes up to the heaven of heavens, doesn't it? And the word me goes down into the hellishness of my own sinfulness. And the word help is the interconnecting link. The top of the word help goes into the word Lord. At the bottom of the word help goes into the word me. Lord, help me. And Jesus is, of course, help. Thou hast laid help upon one who is mighty, the Bible says. It's Jesus. He's the mediator. And he has a link both with God and man because he is both God and man. John Bunyan has a wonderful part in his classic. I hope you've all read The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, do. But as Christian comes out of the slough of despond, remember there's a man who helps him out. And the man's name is Help. And in one of the issues of Pilgrim's Progress, in the margin it says, Help is Jesus. Lord, help me. You see how her prayer has been simplified. Did you notice? There's not a word in her second prayer about her daughter. Isn't that interesting? How many parents here are, are absolutely perfect parents and never need the Lord in your parenting? Only perfect parents I know are ones who haven't had kids yet. Why does God give us kids? Well, many reasons. But what, could one reason be to keep us needy? To keep us close to himself? Keep us dependent? Has it ever struck you that every time it seems that Jesus has a parent bring a child to him? That Jesus first deals with the soul needs of the parent before he deals with the child. Remember the father of the demoniac in Mark 9? Lord, if thou canst do anything, help this boy. If you can believe, anything is possible to him that believes. Whoa, suddenly it's this man who's in the spotlight. Not the boy. Lord, tears, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Here too, you see, he's dealing with the mother. 
So her prayer is reduced, you see. No longer is it Son of David, the Messiah title for the Jews, but it's Lord, Lord of heaven and earth. And now it's no longer help my daughter, help me. What is Jesus doing? He's maturing her through apparent rejection. That's what he's doing. And doesn't the Lord do that with you as well? When you get rejected by men, or it seems that God is pushing away your vision or your plans or your desires and you're confused, you so badly want your son to serve the Lord and lo and behold, he's 19 years old and he's a prodigal and he's left the church altogether. Could it be that one reason why God's doing that is to mature your faith? Lord, help me. Some of our best prayers, friends, are our simplest and our shortest. Isn't this what we see in the book of Nehemiah when he comes in trouble, when he's rejected on every side and criticized and maligned? He starts up these little prayers to God. Lord, help me. Lord, remember me for good. Maturing his faith. There's a third test. There's a final test that Jesus brings this woman through as he matures her faith. Notice verse 26. But he answered and said, It is not meet or fitting to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. First he gives her silence. Then he gives her rejection. Now he seems to give her insult. Cast it to dogs. What's that mean? Well, you need to know that in Bible times, in Old Testament times, all dogs were wild dogs. There were no such thing as pet dogs. And they were considered a filthy animal, unclean. And the Jews often called the Gentiles dogs, the way people today would uncouthly call other people a pig. It was the same idea. In New Testament times, People were just beginning to bring in, not the big wild dogs, but the little wild dogs into their homes as pets. Now, interestingly, Jesus uses the Greek word that implies little dog. But still, a dog is a dog, and who likes to be called a dog? It's not fitting to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And why would Jesus put down the Gentiles as dogs, which was a very uncouth thing to do. Why would he go along with that? Well, to mature her faith. You see, this woman knew she had no natural rights with Jesus. She was a Syrophoenician. She had no religious rights. She was a Gentile. She had no citizenship rights. She was a Canaanite. She deserved to be rejected on these grounds. But what she had not yet admitted was that she was a vile Canaanitish woman. That she was filthy and sinful in herself. And you see what Jesus often wants to do as he tests us, as he tries us, as he matures our faith, he shows us what lives in our heart. He shows us our inner depravity in the process of what we call sanctification so that we learn to cry out, Truth, Lord, I'm a dog. I'm a vile beast before thee. Asaph said, I was as a beast before thee. 
And we learn that there's nothing in our flesh that is good in itself. In my flesh dwells no good thing. Truth, Lord, I'm a dog. That's a test of faith. I don't know if anyone's ever called you a dog or something like it, but uh, how would you respond if they did? Would you respond like Abner, who said, am I a dog's head, and he became angry? Or would you respond like this woman, truth, Lord, I'm a dog. Martin Luther said, this woman ensnared Christ in his own words, and he loved to be so ensnared because she turned a masterstroke upon him. And what was the masterstroke? Truth, Lord, I'm a dog. But if you call me a dog, and an earthly master will feed the crumbs, the leftover crumbs, to his earthly dog, surely you're not harder than an earthly dog owner. Lord, that's all I'm asking for is the crumbs. I'm not asking you to come and sit with the Jewish children around the table and have a full share in the meal. But Lord, you're now in the boundary of Israel. Don't you, don't, can't you push a few crumbs in your, in your generosity, in your magnanimity? Can't you, can't you let a few crumbs fall off the edge of Israel onto this Gentile territory and into this Gentile heart? I'm not asking to raid the meal, to interrupt the meal. I only want a few crumbs for my daughter and for myself. Oh God, help me. You see, she argues with what I like to call holy argument with Jesus. Just as Job said in Job 23, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, I would fill my mouth with arguments and order my cause before him. There is a way of holy pleading, and I would even dare say holy argumentation with God. I say it reverently. And it goes like this, truth, Lord, I'm blind, but hast thou not eyes salve for the blind? Truth, Lord, I'm weak, but art thou not the strong one? Truth, Lord, I'm foolish, but art thou not wisdom? Truth, Lord, I'm a sinner, but art thou not gracious? Truth, Lord, I'm a dog. But don't you have crumbs for dogs? We can argue from our discouraging position. We can argue that we are fit trophies for free and sovereign grace because we're such wretched sinners and beasts before God. That's part of maturation. Becoming a clinging spiritual beggar at the feet of Jesus. Same with Jacob, and she's a New Testament Jacob. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. You know, my dad was a boy. My grandparents lived in a very poor home. They're very simple folk. Two-room house plus a bathroom. And they lived just in front of some train tracks, and beggars would often get it off the train after the train stopped, and they'd come to the front door. One day a beggar came to the front door. My dad was eight, eight, nine years old, answered the door. and The beggar said, I need a sandwich. So my dad went to the, my grandma and said, there's a beggar in the door and he needs a sandwich. And my grandma said, oh, you just go tell the beggar we're just as poor as he is. We have nothing to give him. 
That's all. My dad went to the door and said, we're just as poor as you are. We've got nothing to give you. My dad went to shut the door, but the beggar stuck his foot in the door. My dad couldn't close it. The beggar looked down at my dad and he said, young boy, one slice of bread. My dad didn't know what to do, so he went to my grandma. He said, the beggar won't go away, Mom. He wants only one slice of bread. Ah, said my grandma. He's a real beggar. Go make him a whole sandwich. You see, when we become beggars before God, God never gives us just crumbs. Spiritual beggars take whole loaves of bread. And you see, but this woman said, truth, Lord, but the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. When she's really willing to become what she is before God, because she is a vile sinner. And so when we're really willing to become before God who and what we truly are, nothing but a sinner in whose flesh dwells no good thing, God, may I say this with reverence, God takes the keys out of the storehouse, or out of his pocket, as it were, and he says, these are the keys to my storehouse, Great, mature is your faith, be it unto you, as you will. You can go into my storehouse. You can take anything you want, not crumbs. You can take whole loaves of bread. And that's what this woman did. She went home with two loaves of bread, and she's, I'm speaking figuratively, of course, one for herself, one for her daughter. And her daughter was made whole. The Greek word is well-rounded wholeness. I take it spiritually, physically, emotionally, every way, from that very hour. And you can imagine the joy of this woman when she, when she met her daughter in her right mind, her right natural mind, her right spiritual mind. I think the first thing they talked about was, was Jesus, don't you? And his wonder and his glory and his beauty and his all-sufficiency. O woman, mature is thy faith. You see, God brought her through three major tests and brought her to spiritual maturity. That woman left Jesus a mature believer. After one encounter, that's amazing. Some ways she puts us to shame, doesn't she? She hears a few rumors. She hadn't even heard one full sermon, probably, about who Jesus is. And she comes and she believes and she's molded by Jesus and she walks away a mature believer. And we've heard thousands of sermons. And I put myself right in the front of you and I say, you know, I've been a Christian now for what, 40, 41 years. I should be so much further along than I am. I should be so much more mature than I am. This woman has a lot to teach me. Simple, childlike, trusting, mature face. Well, let me close by just asking one question that maybe, maybe is going on in your mind. How is it possible that Jesus had mercy on her when she is a vile outsider? Well, that's a good question. The answer is, of course, Jesus himself. Did you notice when I gave out the points in the beginning that all three points had the word apparent in it? Apparent silence, apparent rejection, apparent insult. You see, Jesus endured the real thing. My God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? Deafening silence. I pushed away with one hand and drawn with the other. Pushed away with both hands. Rejection. Real rejection. Real forsakenness. And slapped in the face. And spit upon. And mocked with thorny crown. And a purple robe. Prophesy. If thou be the Christ, real insult. He bore the real thing. The real silence, the real rejection, the real insult, so that you and I might only walk in his shadow. He endured it for us in order to give us loaves of bread through his satisfaction so that we might endure the shadows for him in the way of sanctification. And so he matures our faith. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we pray that thou wilt mature our faith through our every trial, our every apparent silence, and apparent rejection, and apparent insult, so that we might be more conformed to Jesus we thank thee so much, Lord Jesus, that thou hast endured the real thing, that we might be honored to bear the shadow, to walk in thy shadows behind thee, and to be matured in the process, to be refined in our faith, so that we might grow up in the Lord Jesus Christ and grow into the Lord Jesus Christ and become branches on the vine that may more and more produce fruit. Please, Lord, bless us with this kind of maturity. Go with us further this afternoon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a 15-minute break. <laughs>